Proverbs chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It is Independence Day weekend, and that means it is not just a moment for us to eat good barbecue and, and uh, set off fireworks and all of the stuff that we usually do to celebrate what many call our nation's birthday, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This is a moment for us to think very carefully about the spiritual condition of our country, what that condition actually is, and why our spiritual condition is what it is. I don't need to tell you that it is poor, desperately so, and we want to explore today one of the main sources of that poverty of spirit and the lack of the power of God, not just in our nation at large, but especially in our churches. In 2005, two sociologists did a large study of the spiritual life of American teenagers. Their names were Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And in 2005, they published this study uh, surveying, you know, what are the results of youth groups in churches? What are the results of teaching kids about Christianity? What are the results of all of the other spiritual influences that young people have in, uh, in America today? What does this look like? What are their spiritual lives? And they came to the conclusion that their spiritual lives are governed by this idea that they describe in three words. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, you, I can tell by the looks on your faces. What is that? This is an idea about God. Deism is one of America's oldest spiritual and religious ideas. It's an idea that presents God as remote. He's the creator. He set up the world to run according to his physical laws. He set it up to run rationally according to all of those, those uh, physical principles. And then he stepped away from his world and from that posture of remoteness, he just kind of lets the world run along. He's not in the world. He's not imminent in your problems. There are times when this theistic God steps in. He intervenes. You can call on him when you're in trouble, but most of the time, he's just letting the world run along the way he designed it to work. That's the deism part of this. The first two words here tell you what kind of deism this is that American teenagers believe. Um, the first word is moralistic. They believe in being good people. They believe that you're supposed to be a good person and that is how you have a, a profitable spiritual life. That's how you have a profitable social life. You just do good things. Be kind. Be loving to the people around you. And uh, in doing all of those good things, you are keeping your relationship with this remote God out there. You're keeping that relationship fine, and you're having a good life with the people around you. So that's the moralistic part of this description. The therapeutic part is this. We believe that God steps in to give us healing and to make us better people. So when we're in trouble, 
when we're addicted to certain substances or when we run out of money or when we have physical problems, we can, we can ask God out of our need, come and help me, and the remote God will step in. He will intervene and he will help us. But he will give us healing in order to uh, uh, strengthen us, to make us better people. Because what's it all about at the, bo- at the end of the day, uh, bottom line, it's about being a good person, loving others, and occasionally needing God's help with that. Now, couple of observations about this. One, that sounds very close to having good, strong, traditional American values. Very close. Second observation about this is that the study was not a study of purely secular people. It included and was informed by evangelicals. This means that the results of decades of building youth programs, decades and decades of time in Sunday school classes and youth rallies and on and on and on is this idea of God. He's remote and your only job in relation to him is to be a good person. So we've had exploding youth programs We've had a massive cultural impact, and our cultural impact was to create deists who do not believe in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice the difference. The minute I say moralistic therapeutic deism and and place it up against a personal relationship with Jesus Christ... The difference is obvious. You cannot be a good enough person. And God is not remote from your life. He's not stepping back from the world that he made and waiting for you to call upon him out of your needs so that he will intervene. The real God, Jesus Christ, is in your life, whether you acknowledge him or not. And his standards of being a good person go far deeper than we will admit. So we look at something like this and say this is uh, something close to a disaster for evangelicals. That we've worked this hard at our youth groups and produced this. Here's the real problem. That's just a snapshot of the spiritual lives of American teenagers in 2005. Who are these teenagers now? Adults. And who is it who's been graduating from all of those youth groups year after year, decade after decade? Us, the adults. The real problem in our society right now and in churches is that evangelicals, the adult evangelicals who sit in church do not understand what the gospel is. Now, you may look at this and say, yep, those millennials, that's what our problem is as a country, is those, these young people and their new beliefs. You know who the poster child for moralistic therapeutic deism is it's not a millennial this goes back to Benjamin Franklin and that's what we're going to talk about this morning the inventor of American spirituality was a deist who overtly specifically and directly disavowed the gospel And he taught what I'm going to call self-help religion. He taught it with his whole life, and he lived out the fruit of it. We're going to look at this.
this morning, this man who on July 4th, 1776, was one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence, also has his signature on our spiritual life today. And it's possible that Ben Franklin rules American evangelical churches more than Jesus does. And that's a big problem for us. So let's dive in here. We're going to start out with the scriptures here in Proverbs chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. We're going to look at the wisdom of God about personal change and what really measures that and how that really happens. And then we're going to look at Franklin. We're going to look at his gospel. What did he believe uh, spiritually and morally? And then we're going to look at Christ and compare all of those things. So let's dive in this morning looking at God's wisdom from Proverbs 20, verses 9 and 10. What is God's standard for a good person? We all say we want to be a good person. We, a lot of times, say, I think I am a good person. What's God's standard? If we look at verse 9, you have a standard of what is clean, and it's a rhetorical question. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Who can say that? The implication here is nobody, no human being can say this. If you back up and look at some of the verses preceding here, uh, back up to verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You know, the heart is a complex zone in the human being. It has motivations that are dark even to ourselves. It's, it's deep, and it takes some drawing out. Verse 6, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. Everyone says, I'm a good person. I will keep my promises to you. We all say that. But a faithful man, who can find? They're not exactly a dime a dozen, are they? They're hard to find. It's hard to find someone who will actually keep his promises and honor fidelity, or a woman who will keep her promises and honor fidelity. Um, verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. This righteousness that goes all the way to the heart is a very good thing, but not having it, Messes with society. Look at verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. The king, the judge, the congressman, the president, the governor, they're all sitting there trying to figure out who's working an evil agenda in this room. Or maybe it's not even that complicated. Maybe it's just Who's not on my agenda in this room? Maybe that's all it is. But they're winnowing the room, separating out the good from the bad. Why? Because no one really knows what's in each other's hearts. That's the whole problem. That brings us to verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. What's the concept of clean here? comes from the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, anything that pollutes you from physical disease to moral wrong to false worship, so whether it's physical, moral, and ethical, or spiritual, anything that pollutes you makes you unclean. And so the concept of the law of Moses is that in order to enter into the presence of the Lord, who is holy. And what does that word holy mean? Absolutely pure, utterly clean, unmixed with anything that is corrupted at all. What, is, what does it take to enter into the presence of a holy God and be clean? Blood. 
in order to enter into God's presence, there has to be a sacrifice. The sacrifice, there were many sacrifices in the law, but there was one that was performed annually where the blood was literally sprinkled on every part of the old tabernacle. It was sprinkled inside the Holy of Holies, and it purified that physical space from the sins of Israel. They had to make a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the altar itself. Blood everywhere. Because sin and, and corruption is just so woven into who we are. So Solomon says here in Proverbs, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Solomon's concept of that is going to come from the law of Moses and he's going to have a ready answer for that question. It is strictly the one who has the sacrifice. That's it. That's the only person who can come before God and claim to be clean. Um, the, the specific question that he asks is, who can say, I have made my heart pure? I did it. I became the good person that I always had the potential to be. I got right with my life. I got right with everyone around me. And I pleased God by dint of my own effort. Solomon is asking, who can say that? Because when you're really saying, I pleased God, you're saying, my heart was right deep inside the purposes and motivations of who I am and working out from there right thoughts, right plans, right ambitions, and then right actions and right words. They all flowed out of the heart being right. And Solomon is saying, who can say I made my heart right? I'm clean. And the answer is nobody. Only a sacrifice can make you clean. What is this idea of a blood sacrifice in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? What is this idea? It is once you have broken the commands of God, once you have rebelled against Him, once you have committed sin, that sin is permanent. It is there. It cannot be taken away except by one thing, justice. We want God to declare us good people without justice. We want God to say, yeah, you're a good person. You have good motivations. I see the real you down there underneath all of the lies that you tell and all of the, the, the things that you steal. And the, I see the real you. The real you is good. Thumbs up to that. Now, if you would just do better, that would be great. And that's the version of God that we want. We want a God who just kind of snips off the past without any justice at all. That means, not to put too fine a point on it, that everything destructive we have done that has cost the people around us, we want God to say, free pass. Now, how do we like that God who gives no justice when the destruction hits us from somebody else? You wronged me. You cost me. You cost me my childhood. You cost me economically and financially. You ruined my emotional life. You destroyed a part of me. What do we want then? Well, then we want the God of justice, right? Where is God? Why did God allow this to happen to me? We want God to be just to everyone else. We don't want God to be just to us. And what Solomon is saying is not one single person can claim that he has made his heart clean. Not one. That is something that only happens from outside of us. And the New Testament is what ultimately comes along and in Jesus Christ completes this verse because he is the blood sacrifice for sin. He makes that atonement that makes 
our hearts clean. He does it from outside of us. He does it to us, upon us. We don't do it ourselves. What I'm describing here is the gospel. And what I'm proclaiming to you is the gospel of Jesus Christ from an Old Testament verse that takes the issue right to the core of your being, who you are in your heart, your thoughts, your motivations. Now, the second thing about this has to do with justice. Who can say, I've made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say that? Well, anybody can say it if the standards are squishy enough. If the standards are flexible and pragmatic and easily bent, then yeah, you can say, oh, I'm a good person. I want good things for everyone around. I love people. I'm a person motivated by kindness. If the standards are squishy enough, you can probably get by with that. But Solomon follows up verse 9 with a statement from the marketplace. Verse 10, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You know what he's saying? When you lay that proverb alongside this rhetorical question, who can say, I have made my heart pure? Solomon says, before you pipe up that you've done it and you've become a good person, let me just tighten up the standards a little bit. Because if you go into the marketplace and you're going to buy a pound of steak, and they're going to put that pound of steak on one side of the balance, and in the other side of the balance, they're going to put a pound weight. And right before your eyes, they're going to keep piling on the meat, the steak, until that balance says, that's a pound of steak. That's a very important process. We want to get what we pay for. If I'm paying for a pound of steak, that's pretty dear. I want to make sure that I get that whole pound, right? Well, what's this thing about unequal weights? That's saying, I'll give you a pound of steak here. Let me take my pound weight, I'll put it in the balance, and we'll start putting meat on there. We'll start piling up the other side of the balance with the steak that I'm going to give you. And when it balances out, it's a pound, right? Except that weight is not a pound. It's less than a pound. And so you're paying for a pound, but the seller is giving you less than you pay for. That's what... Um, Solomon is talking about here. Everybody says they're a good person, but how are they measuring that? We all say, I've made my heart clean. I'm, I'm good. My motivations are good. But what's the standard of measurement? What's the weight in the balance that is behind that? Solomon follows this up by saying, if that weight is not just it's an abomination to the Lord. Because what you're saying is, by PR, by good marketing, I'm a good virtuous person. I do good things. I'm kind to everybody. I love everybody. And you use a standard that seems to verify what you're saying. But in reality, God's looking at it and saying, that pound weight ain't a pound. It's less and you're shorting everyone around you. This is the kind of reasoning that is in um, Proverbs all throughout, and it comes out explicitly right here in verses 9 and 10. Who can say that I have made my heart pure? Go to the weights and make sure the weights are right. Because if they're right, no one comes out in the balance. Good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not mistakes, failures of sin, wickedness, and evil. That's what Paul was saying in that verse, and that's what Solomon is saying here in Proverbs 20. One more characteristic of this. 
the idea that you can declare yourself a good person, loving and kind and well-motivated, with unequal weights, where your pound weight is really just three-quarters of a pound, or a half a pound, it just looks like a pound. The idea that you can do that is a shallow version of righteousness. It's really saying, I can market my way to virtue. If I appear on the surface to be virtuous, and if I can sway everybody else to think that I'm virtuous, well, then I am. And I've made my heart pure, and I am clean before God. It's virtue by PR. That shallow version of virtue will not stand the scrutiny of the Scriptures. God's standard of righteousness is deep. It goes all the way to the heart. And the measures He uses are strictly right measures. Now, having said all of that, Let's just take this standard of righteousness here in Proverbs 20 and compare it, oh, to Facebook. Positivity memes. Putting all of these things out there, the reasons to be positive. And saying affirming things to people. I'm not saying you should be... Uh, flaming on Facebook. I'm not saying that you should be discouraging or insulting to people. In fact, you should not be that. But there's this idea out there that somehow we can generate righteousness by putting a meme up there that tells us to be positive today. Be a good person today. Be kind today. Or my personal favorite, take time to be a dad today. I love that. You are a dad, whether you take the time or not. You cannot take time to be a dad today. It's bigger than that. You see, the shallowness here is if we just keep saying positive things, then we'll become good people. Where did we get this idea? This goes back to Ben Franklin. I want to take you to some of the things that he says. He is famous for his proverbs. In fact, his proverbs are so convincing that uh, people mistake them for Bible verses. And uh, I had somebody tell me, um, a couple of weeks ago that uh, they were in a Bible study and uh, somebody uh, is sit sitting there with his Bible made the statement, God helps those who help themselves. It's right here in the Bible. And she pointed out uh, to this guy, actually, Ben Franklin said that. That's not a Bible verse. This guy got furious and never came back because she was being unfaithful to the scriptures and was insulting him, uh, all of this kind of stuff. People seize on Franklin's Proverbs because they are very pithy and very often they rhyme. And uh, some of them are funny. And, and there's a lot of truth in these things. So let's look at some of the things that he says. He says some things, for example, about work. What is it to be a good person? Well, your job is to work hard and well. You are to uh, uh, labor and constantly uh, express your, your work ethic and, and work smart, be inventive, and all of these kinds of things. Here's some of the things that Franklin says about this. A good example is the best sermon. None preaches better than the ant, and she says nothing. As we saw last week, the ant is a hard worker. He admires that. So don't say anything. Just, just be like that. Follow that example. Um, no gains without 
pains. You know that he came up with that? Um, uh, so that's very true. Hard work often includes pain, usually includes pain, and you're not going to gain anything without hard work. The sleeping fox catches no poultry. I like this one. The used key is always bright. If you're out and busy, and you're going to work, and you're opening the shop, and your key is in use. That means you're doing stuff, and your, your key is always going to be bright because you're always going to be busy. Um, so these are some of the things that uh, he says uh, about work. And uh, his point is that a good person has a strong work ethic. Do we believe this? Of course we do. We believe that good people pull their weight. And if you don't have a good work ethic, this is one of the, the main strikes against you that you're, you're not doing so well. You're not a good person. You're not carrying your load. You're, you're not contributing here. You're also out of a job. You're fired. Uh, this is part of the way we think about these kinds of things. So, Franklin on work. Now, we've talked about work from the book of Proverbs. We've talked about all of these, these principles of the scriptures that working hard is a very important thing and it's an important value. But where does that wisdom from God take us? Took us back to the heart. What is your heart toward God? That's the engine that keeps you working. So, wealth, Honor, the good opinion of other people, these are not the reasons to work. Glorifying God, fearing God, caring for the people around you, these are the reasons to work. Those are heart issues. Who has kept his heart pure? Who has said, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? Solomon says, nobody. Franklin says, well, the hard worker. The hard worker has cleaned himself up. And done right. Here's another uh, thing that Franklin talked about a great deal. Um, frugality. Some of his proverbs. Eat to live and not live to eat. If you want to be frugal, you've got to keep a lid on your desires. You've got to pinch your pennies. You, you have to exercise delayed gratification. You can't just go out and buy whatever you want. And you can't hand yourself over to your appetites. Well, that's good, good thinking. That's a good moral standard to adopt. That to be frugal is to enable you to, to meet your needs, meet the people, people's needs around you. And um, that's a good thing. But notice something else he says about frugality. Franklin said, industry, that's work, and frugality are the means of procuring wealth. Now, if we stopped there, I would probably agree with him because hard work and delayed gratifications are the ways to procure wealth. That's how it's done. But notice what else he adds. Industry and frugality are the means of procuring wealth and thereby securing virtue. You become a good person through your work ethic and your frugality. That's what he said. And that's what he believed. He lived his life that way. Franklin was a very hard worker. It's not like he was being a hypocrite about... Uh, saying it's, it's a good and important thing to work hard. I admire Franklin for a lot of things. Um, he was a printer. He was an inventor. He was a reader, writer, and a, and a scholar. Uh, he worked hard at all kinds of aspects of his life. And uh, I've recently been uh, reading a, a biography of, of him, and uh, I admire him. He also had guts. Franklin was a charmer. I've known a lot of charmers, almost all of them cowards. The difference that Franklin had, 
He had guts. He was bold. And so through all of his charm, he was not running from conflict. He was, he was uh, managing it, and uh, he was not ducking his responsibilities. Um, so these are good principles. These are good moral values. If you want to be seen as a good person, then you would do these things. If you want to learn the disciplines of being a good person, then you would pursue these things just as Franklin did. Here's another one. Community. Franklin was deeply civic-minded. Um, he said this, to pour forth benefits for the common good is a really good thing to do. That's not what he said. If he had said to dedicate your life to pouring out benefits for the common good, and that's a virtue, that's a good thing, it's something that should be admired and held in honor, if that's what he said, that's good. I can agree with that. But here's what he actually said. To pour forth benefits for the common good is divine. You become a virtuous person by being civic-minded. He was very civic-minded. He was not a hypocrite about this. He lived this out. He was consistent with this value. One of the things he said uh, in uh, Poor Richard's Almanac is, um, um, he that drinks his cider alone, let him catch his horse alone. If you're not going to make friends and be civic-minded, and if you're not going to participate in the lives of other people, you're going to drink your cider alone and shut out all fellowship and friendship, then when your horse is, is uh, missing, you can go out and catch him alone. But he said, as for me and my friends, we're going to be civic-minded. We're going to govern ourselves here in Boston or Philadelphia or wherever he happened to live mostly Philadelphia later in life, um, in his adult life. Um, he was extremely influential in launching community organizations. He started a library. It's still in existence called the Franklin Library, appropriately enough. He started fire brigades. Did you know this? The fire trucks that you see in our cities, any city in America, Franklin's idea. He said, you know, this is pretty dumb when a house gets on fire that we don't all get together and form fire brigades and help each other with the fires. That's crazy. Why don't we be civic-minded and get organized about this? That was his idea. Uh, he later founded uh, Night Watchman Corps, uh, a hospital. He founded militias, the Minutemen, Lexington and Concord, his idea. Let's, um, let's defend our towns. Let's do it ourselves. Uh, he said, the good men may do what the good men may do separately is small compared with what they may do collectively. If you get people together, you can do more. So I like all of this stuff. And he was consistent in this. He held to this standard. So that's all right. So, here's Franklin, he's, he's got a couple more things to say. He's big on love. Doesn't like that God who is a judge, heavy-handed doctrine, grim sermons, and angry preachers. Doesn't like any of that. In fact, he's kind of slyly all the time uh, throughout his life. Uh, attacking the clergy and attacking uh, preachers and their concept of, of the gospel. Except for Whitfield, he liked Whitfield. Um, and, uh, but his main thing about Whitfield was how could he talk to 10,000 people? Uh, that was his main interest in Whitfield, not the gospel that Whitfield was giving, but how big was his audience and how far could his voice carry? Um, so it, it, he was... 
a believer in a kind of God who was loving, kind, generous, benevolent. Um, and this God was not much in the way of judging. And um, he really said he only had two religious beliefs. He said one of them was the existence of the deity. Notice how he expresses that. Is that a close-by God who walks with you? No. That's the existence of a being out there called God. And he believed that the most acceptable service of God was doing good to man. Want to please God? Just do good things to the people around you. Be a good person. God is love. Have you heard this before? This didn't start with millennials, friends. This does not start with hippies. This did not start with beatniks. This did not start with socialists. This reduction of God to one kind of generalized benevolence this did not start with all of the people we usually point the finger at as saying, those are the bad guys. This started with one of the founders of our nation, Benjamin Franklin. In other words, moralistic, therapeutic deism is the American religion. We believe in self-help. That's what we practice, that's what we pray about, and we pray to the God of self-help. And Benjamin Franklin is one of those who taught us how to worship that idol. Finally, the weights are unequal. What do you mean, Pastor? I thought you said Franklin was consistent in all of the things that he did. I thought you said he was a hard worker and he was frugal. And I thought you said that he was civic-minded and that he was a, a kind, loving person. Well, yes, as far as those things go. But there's something about Franklin that we need to understand. One time he made a resolution as a young man that he was going to be a vegetarian. And then they started cleaning fish in front of him. And the longer they were cleaning those fish, the hungrier he got for meat. And he decided, eh, what's vegetarianism? I'm just going to eat the fish. And he did. And he commented about this. So convenient a thing it is. So convenient a thing it is. To be a reasonable creature. Since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. He's a pragmatist. If he makes a moral resolution and then doesn't want to keep the resolution, he's reasonable, he's pragmatic, he'll find a reason to change the resolution. He'll eat the fish if he's hungry. That's Franklin, and um, it means that the weights for him were not equal. You say, where was he inconsistent? Look at his family. Something very striking and sad. Um, that all the time he was in London and Paris, which was uh, many, many years of his life, um, he neglected his illegitimate son and his legitimate daughter. Uh, all the time he was in London and Paris um, working for American prosperity and later independence, all that time he set up surrogate families. So he would, he would live with uh, a woman in London named Mrs. Stevenson, and she became... Uh, in everything but physical reality, his wife. That was his London wife. And then he would set up flirtations with all of these surrogate daughter figures. I mean, it gets really weird. 
He starts writing long letters to these daughter stand-ins. And, um, and so then he does the same thing in Paris. Whole households that are surrogate family members. And it's kind of like he's so shallow that he, he's basically saying, well, I'm in London now. The wife's back in Philadelphia. The daughter's back in Philadelphia. What am, what am I supposed to do? The biographer that uh, I'm reading makes a very good point, a very uh, important point. If you read the letters of John Adams to his wife Abigail when he was in Paris and London, you're seeing teamwork, you're seeing oneness, love, warmth between this man and his wife. You read the letters from Franklin to his wife, Deborah, cold, critical, remote. He was as remote as God. And so Franklin does that. He had all of these surrogate daughters that he was flirting with and cultivated a, a fatherly kind of instructive relationship uh, with them after he got over being infatuated with them. The, the biographer points out, as many people do, he had a real daughter. And when she wrote to him saying what she was doing to keep a good house and to further the revolution and all of these things, what did she get back? Criticism. You're not being frugal enough. You're not working hard enough. You're not being a good enough wife to that husband of yours. And on and on and on. The weights are unequal in Franklin, Franklin's life. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? Franklin said it, but he only got there by being shifty with the weights in the scales. So Solomon is saying to us, no one, no one can claim to be righteous. Not Franklin, not anyone. Let's look at some of these questions before we, um, before we uh, round this out. Uh, wasn't Ben Franklin a Freemason and part of the Illuminati? Uh, well, if you believe YouTube, everyone's Illuminati. Um, so, I see you haven't watched that channel. See Malcolm, he'll set you up with that. that Everything is evidence of Illuminati. Uh, yes, Franklin was a Freemason and that is its own religion. Freemasonry is, a, is um, its own spirituality based on being a good person and love of mankind. And Franklin um, was and did believe in that system of spirituality. Another question, was George Washington a deist? Lots of people say that he was. Um, I don't agree with them. It's interesting, we visited Mount Vernon on our trip earlier uh, this month. We went to Mount Vernon and visited Washington's tomb. Washington uh, rejected the request that he be buried at dead center of the U.S. Capitol. The, the very center of the District of Columbia, right under the dome, they made a crypt for him. You can go there and look at it. And he refused to be buried there. He made a tomb for himself and his wife Martha at Mount Vernon. And it's very interesting to me, the verse that he ordered to be put in that crypt above his and his wife's casket. And that is... Um, where Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and uh, so people are divided, scholars divided about whether George Washington was a deist. I don't think he was. I think he was very conscious about what he put uh, uh, around him and the messages he sent with things like that. And I believe that's him declaring his faith in Christ there. Um, another question here. The need to work hard to eat goes back to Genesis 3. God said that by the sweat of your brow shall you eat 
uh, having to work hard is the curse doesn't make you a good person. Well, sort of. Hard work was built into the garden before the fall. It's just you got something from it before the fall. After the fall, your hard work doesn't add up to a hill of beans. You just got to go back the next morning and pull weeds again. Um, so that's uh, the, um, the curse uh, in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and it does not make you a good person that you pull the weeds. Okay, compare being good versus whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, etc., uh, or put on the new man, uh, the heart of compassion, kindness, etc. These from Philippians 4 and Colossians 3. Well, if you're Facebook good, then you just look kind. If you're Instagram good, then you just look, you look, first of all, really good because you never take a picture of yourself when you don't look good. But then uh, on top of that, you put positivity in there and so you, now you look good and virtuous, both. And uh, so what, um, what that is, is satisfying a very shallow standard of righteousness that we've been talking about. Righteousness, virtue by PR. What Philippians 4 and Colossians 3 are talking about is the new person from the heart Outward, all the motivations change, and the justice of God pays for your sins. And you are therefore clean. That's a totally different standard of righteousness. Let's move on here. Oh, there's one more. What did ben, ben Franklin say or do about Jesus? For that matter, what about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? He had absolutely nothing to say that I know of about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Had no use for it. That was way too Puritan. Um, too Calvinistic for him. Uh, the preachers all talked about that, but uh, they talked too much, the preachers. Uh, so what did he have to say about Jesus? Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good person. He would say the same thing that Thomas Jefferson would say about Jesus. You know, Jefferson had his own Bible. You know what he did with it? He cut out all of the miracle stories. Everything about God. Everything except the good morals, which is to say the morals that Thomas Jefferson approved of. The Bible got a lot smaller with Thomas Jefferson because he cut out all of the stuff that God did including the gospel. And what you're left with is Jesus telling you, be a good person today. You can do it. In other words, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, if they had their way, you would have no hope in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is just piling on more duties, more goodness, instead of saving your soul so that you can be transformed. Let's talk about Christ. We're in a mess in our country. Spiritually, this is a devastating time to be an American. What we need to get through our heads is that it's not because we're being unpatriotic, bad Americans who don't hold to traditional values. The problem is we, the churches, have fallen for a false gospel. We teach self-help. We teach values instead of forgiveness. We teach morals instead of cleansing, biblical cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ. And even that we only express in moralistic terms instead of in the terms of healing and transformation. And young people have been receiving that message quite clearly for decades. That's why in 2005, when Smith and Denton studied the spiritual lives of American teenagers, they realized they're deists. And they believe in being good people, and being healed. Here's the fact of the matter spiritually. 
Purification for sin is beyond us. We cannot do it. We cannot accomplish purification of sin. We cannot be the sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God for ourselves. Who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean? Nobody. So it's beyond us. What is upon us? What is our duty? What is our responsibility? What can we do? We can let God change us. In other words, we can ditch that God, that idol who is remote and only intervenes when we're in trouble, when we need him. We can ditch that idol and we can realize the real God, Jesus Christ, is intrusive. He's in my face. He's walking with me and he is with me in everything that I do so that when his holy standard hits me, I come up guilty every time. And he's there with me. And he is not relaxing that standard. There is no pragmatism in his holiness. He is utterly pure. And it is my responsibility to turn my past over to him because he paid for it and satisfied the justice of God. To turn my present over to him so that not only am I forgiven, but he walks with me, changes me, transforms me into that new man, that new person he has called me to be. And he does all of that out of his great love and grace for me. So that at the end, when I say I am clean, I don't say it's because of what I have done. It's because of Christ. I am forgiven because of Christ. I am transformed because of Christ. May all the glory go to my Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Franklin had good truth it only had half-truths. And as he himself said, half the truth is often a very great lie. One more question. The founding fathers, we are told, went by in God we trust, but they did not use the appropriate measures of God. Comment on this. Interesting, um, the founders were all theists, even if they were, as Franklin and Jefferson, even if they were deists, they all believed in God, they all talked about God. It's very striking how, uh, how often they talked about who God is and his, um, his place in the life of the nation but they did not use the appropriate measure. Basically, what you have in Jefferson and Franklin and many other of the founders is, God's good, it's good for people to worship God, keeps them, keeps them good, keeps them with that burden of duty on them. So religion's useful, by the way. You often hear these things quoted to say, we are a Christian nation, watch out. Because if you're hearing that from Thomas Jefferson, what you're hearing is religion is pragmatically valuable for keeping people good. And you're buying into an anti-Christ falsehood. Because the standard of goodness is not Jefferson's. It's not Jefferson and Franklin saying, yeah, God's got some points here. And he's got good things to say over here. And there are good religious things to gain from this, but we'll be the judges of that, we rationalists, who are schooled and hardworking and frugal and civic-minded. We'll judge what the good stuff is. Don't buy into it. There were, among the founders, as there are today, very few actual Christians how good God is and how gracious He is 
when the founding was so riddled with this kind of idolatry, how he has blessed this nation. What would happen today if we started to say, no more idols, no more idolatrous worship of our founding and our country. Let's worship Jesus again. What would happen in our churches, in our country, in our state? I think we would be astonished at it. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to see you move among us. And we know that can't happen except by your truth. And so we ask you to give us eyes to see, help us to discern what your gospel is and what it is not. And as we do this, we will give you all the glory because you are the one who paid for our sins and who brought us to the foot of your cross and who gives us new life in your resurrection. We will hold to that. We will preach that. That is the equal weight the right standard. Give us that resolution, that discernment, and we will give you the glory. We pray it in your name and for your sake. Amen.